From the chaos of 1930s wrestling to the marquee draw of World of Sports, these two brothers blazed a trail to undeniable stardom. Today we talk about Black Butcher and Johnny Quango. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swords. Pearl as a lane history nerd. Can you believe it's only been two weeks since you have heard my voice? Welcome, welcome to another episode of Pro Wrestling History Nerds. My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter, booker, occasionally referee, every now and then a ring announcer. But more important for today, I am a pro wrestling history nerd. And I am here with the Toadstool to my Princess Peach, it's Chago Bronson. How the hell are you, man? Hello, nerds! And this heist required a third party to complete the caper, so I brought along a certain old chap that I've done a lot of numerous crimes with. We were a faction under Kevin Sullivan together in an alternate pro wrestling timeline. I've maybe been in more bar fights standing side by side watching this man get punched in the face. He is one half of the third most fake iconic tag team from the 80s, Dick Kick, as is no warranty. Hello, darling. Hello, hello, people. Hello, people. And also, too, to my left, we have Nick Gossett. Oh, man, I am just happy to be here. What a... Hey, wait a minute. This is my show. How dare you? <laughs> I am, this is going to be fun. This is going to be a lot of fun having an, an, extra, an extra brain on hand to put some, uh, some information and some opinions out here because we've got a fun one today. Uh, we're going to kind of dip our toe back into the 20th century over to England. We're going to be talking about two very important men and to a lot of Brit British listeners. I know you're out there. You're going to say, yeah, no shit, guys. These guys ruled and are important, but we are dumb as shit Americans. So this was groundbreaking to me when I came across them. We're going to be talking about Black Butcher Johnson and Johnny Quango. We're going to be talking about the two first black English stars of the 20th century in English wrestling, guys who paved the way for so many that came after. And these guys had some crazy lives, some crazy careers, and I am looking forward to talking about them today. And some crazy style, darling. The, the sophistication of the entrance attire, the ring jackets, chef's kiss. The coats, the coats were fabulous. Yes, the coats were quite fabulous. Almost as good as your fringe on your entrance attire. Okay? I mean, I feel like my fringe is okay. Your fringe is tip top. Uh -huh. Yes, pippity pop cheerio. So to lay the groundwork for these gentlemen, we first have to really compare the culture, the society, and unfortunately the systemic racism in Britain versus what was happening in the U.S. In Britain, slavery was abolished in 1834 with public demand for such a move going back to the late 1700s. Was racism still a problem? Yes, but black people could hold normal jobs and interact with the white society without outrage, persecution, and violence, uh, much, much, much different than how things were and in many ways still are here in the United States. So while there were still racial issues in the UK in the late 1800s, early and mid 1900s, it was nothing like what men like Vero Small, you know, Black Sam, uh, you know, from uh, you know, we, who we discussed in an earlier episode, and other athletes of his caliber had to put up with. So it was a much different time. It was a much different place. It was a much more integrated society. So they were able to kind of jump over a lot of the barriers that athletes in America still had to put up with. Yet and still, they, they had to be the first and break the barrier. Someone had to be the person to be that initiator of the new culture, and it's pretty awesome that we get to break into that today, brother. Yeah, I'm very, very, very interested in learning about this. I actually hadn't heard about these fellas until we, like, discussed it a little bit. Like, I felt like I've seen videos of them, but I haven't really dug very deep into it. Yeah, because these are guys, especially Johnny Quango, who a lot of people who watched uh, World of Sport are going to go, yeah, dummies, you stupid Americans, how did you not know about these guys? Well, the same reason we don't know about a lot of cool wrestlers over there. We didn't see it. We didn't grow up with it. We had our own shit over here that you nerds don't know about. So that's why it's a cross-pollination of knowledge to create a nerd uh, shared universe, if we will. Yes, we're yes, working yes, on it. We're yes. trying to get the knowledge to the people now. To everyone. Yes, out and, there. you know, it's not our fault that we started out as uncultured swine, but we are going to deep dive into it today, old chap. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Can't wait. I'm very, very, very excited. 
So as I said, in the microcosm that is pro wrestling, black men had a much easier time integrating into legitimate pro wrestling in Britain than they did in America. Uh, you know, that's where you heard in a previous episode where Vero Small was essentially forced into being a specialty act if that's the nice way to put it, and spent most of his career competing only against African-Americans in segregated bouts. Meanwhile, men like Frank Crozier, who was the toast of Scottish, English, and continental wrestling and boxing scenes. According to one story that borderlines on myth, and isn't that what pro wrestling is all about, because totally none amazing. of it can be verified. Irene Bess, a black circus strongwoman, possibly a wrestler, made an impact on the entertainment world of England and Europe as a black woman in the late 1800s. True or not, it's you know almost impossible to verify some of her stories. Her real impact was being the mother of the two best black wrestlers in the mid 20th century. Black Butcher Johnson and Johnny Quango. So we already have like a really interesting origin story where a black circus strong woman comes across from continental uh, Europe with a legend of maybe being a pro wrestler, definitely being a carny, and is the matriarch of this wrestling family. Yeah, that is incredible and draws so many parallels from everything to like, you know, superhero backstory lure and mythos to like. The Williams sisters, like, yeah, you know, like, like where it's it, it's it's in your family, and people that you like are raising you are like putting this into your life at a very early age before you even realize what it is. Yeah, and I imagine that that the entire aspect of being raised in that context means that you were trained from she probably trained her boys the their wrestling. entire life yeah. Yeah, like they yeah, were they're they're like, yeah, like pre, you know heart family style that's pretty incredible that's dope but whether trained by their mother or friends we also have to keep in mind this is when wrestling like those big greco-roman tournaments were still happening in the alhambra theater wrestling was still a folk style it was everywhere be it the catch style or greco-roman Everybody knew wrestling. Everybody knew a hold or two. It was just what people did when there was nothing else to do because they're rambunctious boys. There aren't other sports for the most part, and television doesn't yet exist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I would, you know, it's interesting because no matter where we have looked at in the the timetable journey that is this show, every culture, every area, every town that we've focused on has its own style of wrestling that came there whether it's through war or through training in military camps like in the civil war uh, the way they did it in the uk i can only imagine how you know the crossover sophistication of the grappling at that time in in england and the surrounding areas compared to what it would be in the united states yeah, especially during that time, like how you were saying, like there's no television. So people can't like look at other moves or other styles. So the culture that you have is going to be indicative of the town that you're from. That's a good word, indicative, old chap. <laughs> In 1912, Irene Bess, now married and named Irene Howe, gave birth to Arthur Howe. However, there are no birth records for him, so he might have been born on a European tour or simply fell through the cracks of the records. Either is possible, both happened all the time. But by the time he was a teen, professional wrestling in England was changing in a big way. The love of Greco-Roman wrestling and stars like London resident and Estonian native George Hackenschmidt had faded almost completely and even competitive catch wrestling was starting to fall out of favor, and it was being replaced with the slam-bang Western wrestling style, anything-goes style, spearheaded in America by the Gold Dust Trio, and was capitalized upon in Britain by Athol Oakley and Henry Erslinger, who then created the British Wrestling Association. I love the name Athol Oakley because it sounds like you're holding your tongue and saying a bad word. Yeah, that's, a, that's very interesting because First of all, the concept of American-style wrestling being seen as, like, slam-bang and knowing the evolution of what came out of the UK as world of sports style, which is very, you know, technical yeah, and real and grappling. Yeah, very, yeah, very, yeah, very, very, very grappling. It's like that initial sort of sticking their nose in the air at the critique of that fancy, you know, high-spot American slam-bang style. 
And this was before, you know, being an American automatically meant you were an asshole. So they didn't have that initial turn up your nose at it because it's American. They caught on to it because it did the most important thing in pro wrestling, sell tickets. tickets. Because yeah. this is this is post Hackenschmidt gotch. This is post the damage that that did to legitimate wrestling. This is yeah. where wrestling was hitting a new stride because it had to be exciting, therefore it had to be worked. And it kind of was going beyond the worked realistic style to a more entertaining, high-paced, you know, like high-spotty style that people wanted to see and were wanting to pay money to see. Yeah, it's very hard to get people, I feel like, even like nowadays, to like know grappling knowledge, you know? So like when you come from like grappling into like high spots or like flying and stuff, like it's, it's going to be easier to sell tickets for that than something like grappling based where you have to actually have a knowledge of what's going on. Yeah, the the high spot stuff is a lot prettier. But that that's very, you know, what that makes me wonder is did what happened with the whole exposure of the business in the United States, the, the ripple effect of that change the philosophy of other places besides the U.S.? We haven't really got into that, but it sounds like the way that that changed the game here affected the way that it was seen abroad in the UK as well. Oh, absolutely, because wrestling has been an exposed business for well over a hundred years in America. And it was the same thing in, 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 in Britain where it was kind of a known secret that this wasn't always on the up and up. Like, you know, car like the carnyism of British wrestling, much like British boxing, much like so yeah. much over there, is at a much higher level than it is here, especially at this, uh, th this period. So it was all about selling tickets. They weren't trying to hide things quite as much. You know, the wrestlers, for the most part, still had to be tough guys, and most working class guys out of places like Liverpool and Lancashire and such were tough guys by default because they've been drinking in the pub and getting in fights since they were eight years old. And now it's time to take the sports entertainment aspect of it and you know rev that into high gear and that creates new opportunities for, for performers and for styles to emerge, man. Also too, that creates new characters, you know? Like, yeah. like when you have to change like the style, it's gonna change the characters. Yep. And Athol Oakley and Henry Erslinger, they put together the British Wrestling Association, the first real kind of unified wrestling promotion in Britain. So this was a big first step right there. And they put on displays that high-paced, exciting style of wrestling with the most entertaining moves taken from all styles and put on display with big body slams, weird gimmick matches, and even strikes allowed to make it more fun to watch. This was wrestling fully transformed into entertainment. This is closer to what we see on television today than what we would see something like Hackenschmidt or Gotch or Burns or Lewis even. This was going for circus insanity, not making it a competitive sport, just making something to make the drunks in the stands go fucking bananas cheering their brains out. Essentially just making it fun. Exactly. It was making it fun because, hey, you know what? When you are a working class guy in the early 1900s, once again, you know, it's like, hey, you work at a factory 12 hours a day, seven days a week, and then you go want to have a drink and blow off some steam. And when you get to watch some crazy, like almost cartoonish fight in a ring and you get to cheer it on and yell a bunch of crazy shit. Yeah, that's that's what you need on a spiritual level. Yeah, and I, I also want to point out that part of what made it fun and made it stand out was the superior technical aspect of what they were attempting to pull off. And that that's always very interesting to me, how, like, the culture itself of, like, sort of proper, you know, Juilliard, formally yeah, trained, right? Exactly. The, the superior technical Definitely element personally. being one of the calling cards of that variant that style is very you know that that always plays out to me and i find it so cool that the place and the culture of the place will bleed into what makes the the style of wrestling unique and one thing that made me giggle when i read it athel oakley as so many promoters have done since of course made himself the first heavyweight champion of course you have to 
That's awesome. That's, <laughs> that's how you knew that. That's how you knew it was destined for success, darling. Yes. Um, I'm going over, kid. Gotta book yourself over. And that's when Arthur Howe, now entering the world of wrestling, he was a 180-pound skilled grappler when he signed with the British Wrestling Association. He changed his name to Arthur Johnson, later Black Butcher Johnson, and occasionally the Wild Man of Borneo. Oh, no, really? Yes, but that was at the After Hours party on oh, no, I don't think that ever made the marquee. Oh, no. Yeah, really? Because no uh, it, it. It, it was gimmick. It was gimmick. Uh, because once again, this hurts. is a time where it, it sucks, <laughs> but it was also like, hey, you want to make everything as exotic and cartoonish as possible. Yeah. So, of course, it's like it can't just be like, hey, we already have a, uh, a guy named Dale who uh, works at, as a pipe fitter oh, down the street. Yeah. We need... A wild man from Borneo. Uh, so they did dress it up a little bit. It feels a little cringe today, I mean, but it was a different time as far as like exotic locales trying to sell tickets. A little bit of uh, a little bit subhumanizing. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there is a little rascals episode based off of that too. Also, so like, I mean, I get it. It's kind of probably par for the time. I will I mean, say, I will say this, not to play the devil's advocate, old chap, but if you are gonna completely degrade a person below the status of of his fellow man, at least they put a little style and panache into the name, old chap. Yeah, the wild man from Borja. Yeah. I mean, it still doesn't make it hurt. No, you're right. Yes, no, that's this. But how we feel about the gimmick or not, he did become a top guy. He was working with the top stars of the BWA. He was not like an opening act. He wasn't like some goofy gimmick that gets squashed immediately. He was a top wrestler doing competitive matches, main eventing here and there. But by the late 1930s, the city of London banned pro wrestling as an illegitimate sport, and wrestling essentially went away until the end of World War II. And you may ask yourself, how did wrestling get banned in London? Well, by becoming too popular, having too much competition, with some sources claiming that up to 40 venues in London County were hosting pro wrestling. And as we saw during the Monday Night War and many other conflicts throughout history, conflict leads to escalation to take the lead in the business. Matches became more violent, women's matches were included, then they turned into like mud pit matches, weapons matches became a thing, and the very first tables match. Things got so wild and violent that the city put a stop to it, and the London County Council outlawed wrestling. So things just got fucking wild, because you think about just like the way they were pushing boundaries during the Monday Night War in competition, and that was still having to work within the confines of what was allowed on basic cable. This is just like anything goes, back room, little arenas, pubs, just making it fucking crazier and crazier and crazier to outdraw the guy down the road who's doing something batshit insane as well. How good how good do those matches have to be to get the whole industry shut down? Yeah, yeah, because it's <laughs> always a brilliant idea to take something really, really popular and make it illegal. <laughs> right. Like let's get let's get this thing so over that they have to outlaw that shit. I mean imagine the peak Monday Night Wars if they had just taken it off TV. That's what you're talking about. Talk about leaving chips on the table. Very lowercase. No wonder you lost to us nerds, you you bloody redcoats. Yeah, it, it was like, imagine if instead of WWF versus WCW, it was ECW versus like 10 insane like juggalo backyard shows. It was just literally like, oh, well, over here is a wrestling match. Well, over here is a wrestling match where they're allowed to throw punches. Over here is, okay, we're going to have a women's match. Oh, well, our women's match are going to be topless. Our women's match are going to be topless in a vat of mud. Oh, yeah, well, over here, we're going to have a you know a, a match where somebody gets hit with a baseball or cricket bat, I guess it would be over Ooh. there. Oh, well, over here, we're going to throw a man through a table and then make a tables match. And it just escalates from there until the, like, the, the proper British, you know, snobbery government had to go you know i say old boy this cannot even remotely be considered a legitimate sport you, you know we, we've gone beyond the kind of the secret the open secret of what wrestling is you've just you're making everybody look bad we can no longer turn a blind day fucking knock it off and how how bad do you have to like how wild do you have to get to fuck things up that bad 
I mean, obviously, I mean, obviously, they got pretty wild and it got pretty bad because they stopped it. But at one point, too, also, like, how good was it really? You know, like, seriously, like, if it's like, if, if it's getting other people involved, they were like, all right, this is too much, you know? Like, I'm pretty sure a lot of that stuff was probably very on point. Oh, yeah, but it's also, like, I feel like that kind of. British snobbery of the yeah that's what it is it's uncultured yeah well it's because I mean grappling and wrestling was very popular amongst the aristocracy and the upper class but that was the Alhambra theater tournaments that's watching guys like Hackett Schmidt and George Lurich and guys like that so when you have these like bizarre carnies doing insane shit I kind of have the feeling it was like it was like the crusty old Dean in in Animal House (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs) <laughs> like just, just we have to shut that down. That frat, they're an animal house. Yes, <laughs> yes. the elites can't let us, ha- us regular folks, have any fun, can't they? I mean, I feel like it's just like how, like Gossi was saying, it's just probably more of the British snobbery and like, jealousy. Just, yeah, just it being uncultured and just being like, oh, they're down there wrestling in mud. You know? Yeah, I, I feel like they just saw it as like, oh, you're taking this thing that is pure and athletic. Because keep in mind, this is still in that period when we talked about how when the um, Olympic wrestler, wrestling came back and the and the new modern Olympics were yeah. formed, where one of the big basis of why it was amateur competition was to make sure working men could not compete against the aristocrats. Everything was gamed to the upper classes, so therefore them making like the Olympic wrestling or whatever it is they're into look classless and uh, and 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 just vile well then it all has to go away because you can't uh, you know, we're not we're not allowing this in our society yeah it's I I'm curious to what the what where it goes from here because I know that there's a legal process or at least the uh, the concept of a legal process that you can go through in the United States to approach trying to get a law changed if it's unjust, like we did. Yeah, 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 the, yeah like the, how we did in Washington. The legislation in Washington, yeah. But I, in the UK with the with the monarchy, I don't know how that would work. Well, how it worked is because wrestling did come back in kind of the late 30s, like during World War II. But you have to keep in mind, most able-bodied men were a little busy during this uh, this period, and also, you know, it was it was still like kind of frowned upon. There was like a hard way to work around it. It reminds me very much of like the UFC, mm, you know, after after UFC. a couple of years where like you know McCain was after it, even though he never watched it, and like it was just everybody was calling it human cockfighting. So it had to be done like at, on an Indian reservation in front of a hundred people, t- trying to, like fighting for its life, like barely sustainable. Uh, but it did finally, because people wanted to watch wrestling. People always want to watch wrestling, it, and yeah. rightfully so. So there was finally what you could almost call a compromise with the creation of the Admiral Lord Mount Evans rules, which were created and adopted in 1952 to create the British style of pro wrestling that you would see for decades to come on shows like World of Sports. So the Admiral Lord <laughs> he has many, many titles, right? Like, what is this yeah, guy's yeah, name? Yeah, you could tell the elitism just in right? the oh, yeah. Captain, oh. Lieutenant, Doctor. It's just, it, just, it just sounds so stuffy. Yeah. 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 They, they were named after Edward Evans, first Baron Mount Evans, who ordered a unified set of rules for professional wrestling, and this is what had to be adopted coast to coast and all the little goofy islands along the way. And this set up a series of weight classes. So weight classes are now introduced formally in British wrestling and created a list of legal holds like the standing and ground half Nelson, quarter Nelson, three quarter Nelson, and full Nelson. I guess they couldn't do the Nelson and a half, only having two arms. You know, standing or on the ground, front side or reverse head chancery. Chancery. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. A little head chancery. Waist holds, standing or ground, uh, arm up at the back, arm at the back with elbow press, arm at the back of the bar. So just weird, like shoulder manipulation, shoulder locks, um, crotch holds, single or double legs, uh, back heel, leg strokes, which is tripping, knee strokes, which is like knee trips, single or double leg takedowns, bridging, uh, scissor holds, you know, flying mares, arm rolls, wrist rolls, you know, pretty much it just kind of like put into place like, no, you can't punch people, you can't kick people, you can't, you know, do all these like crazy things. It kind of made it more 
kind of try to bring it back to like almost like a a classy catch wrestling style. Uh, where you know you'd, you you would win by pinfall or submission or a KO if you land on your head or you know whatever or disqualification after three warnings. So it really did good by bringing everything together under a unified rule set, much like we saw with mixed martial arts about how it flourished once a unified set of rules was agreed upon, adopted, and and like accepted by the athletic commissions. It just seems like to me like they were just trying to bring a little bit more like legitimacy back to the wrestling and try to like bring it back from like how you were saying all the table matches and the weapons and like the actual punching. Yeah, I feel like it was trying to bring it back to something they could turn a blind eye to where it'd be yeah. like, like, okay, we're going to make this look as legitimately as possible, kind of like what was happening in the U.S. with like the you know Goldust Trio Athletic Commissions, later the NWA, where it's like, we're gonna make this look as codified and as much like a real sport as possible. Just don't, you know, just don't let it, don't ask, don't tell. Just don't, don't let us know, don't let us obviously see what a fucking work this is so we can all just go about our business without it being a headache. Yeah, and then I wonder, you know, the subverse layer of it, like, who is on this rules committee? What decided what holds were allowed yeah, and not exactly. allowed? Yeah, exactly. Who are these people? I mean, when you were reading that, I was like, what is this, the Gracie Baja two-stripe program, like a curriculum? Like, this is, you're going to confine the totality of wrestling and grappling to, like, this list of rudimentary moves that some nerd doesn't even know how to say? Bent oh, probably. Elbow hold? Like, was he just going, he was just flexing his privilege and being like, I'm going to use all my fancy wrestling moves, and if I don't know it, it's banned, because I'm counting Mountain Evans, whatever. Yeah, I feel like there was a bit of that, once again, the aristocracy, that upper-class ideal, totally. where they were banning what they would consider, like, the dirty moves, like the street fight moves. Like, you know, it's like, oh, no uh, no thumb breaks or, uh, you know, finger manipulation or, you know, any of these things that would, like, be considered a dirty... It, it, it was very much like... Fair, fair, manly competition, clean, uh, clean athleticism. Gentlemen's grappling, exactly. Yeah, but at the end of the day, these are the guys that are deciding what that line is. Yeah. And I would just be interested in knowing what that was. He's like, nope, I lost to that twice. That's out. (laughs) Yeah, no, I've never been able to hit that. That one's gone. Nope. Oh, you like that move? No. Nope. 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 Can't do that one. Yep. Definitely. Just like when we're setting up one of your matches. I have no idea what you're referring to. I got him. And in 1952, the same year that these rules were adopted, the biggest promoters in England and Scotland, now that they've been a little bit more legitimized, joined together and created joint promotions. A territorial collective, kind of like what the NWA was in America, which had been created in the U.S. only four years previous. Two years later, in... 1954, Henry Erslinger passed away and the British Wrestling Association died with him. So now we've seen the wrestling come back. We've seen wrestling be legitimized. We now see all these promoters who now can just, you know, have full steam ahead, joining together into a talent sharing program to just make wrestling as big as it was. And unfortunately, the guy who started it all passed away before he could benefit from anything he uh, put the work into. Of course. Who booked this shit? This is a sad angle. Yes, yes. This is a terrible, terrible cutoff. Let's let's hope for a good hope spot. But yeah, because one man who did benefit was Black Butcher Johnson. His career was catching fire at this time. He was athletic, charismatic, and adapted to the high-energy, high-spot-fueled wrestling style of post-war Britain. He won his first title in Aberdeen, Scotland, and in 1955 won another in Edinburgh by defeating Norman Walsh, a Walsh, I assume. I, British people are getting very mad at me by the way I said it the first time. Uh, top star and talent who faced off against Luthez later on in his career. So this is a guy who, you know, he's come in. He's already a top guy. He's got the looks. He's got the body. He's got the skill set, the athleticism to just put these entertaining, high-paced matches together. And it's paying off with titles in various promotions. Yeah, so the Butcher made waves first. He's, he's crossed over. They're doing this thing not just in the UK, but they're they're working with Ir- the oh, Irish Scotland. now, yeah, yeah or yeah. Scot Scotland, the Scottish, right? Yeah. Work, yeah. yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. So that yeah, that's pretty awesome. I I can only imagine that he must be the older brother and probably the heel of the promotion. Yes. I mean, two. when your name is the Butcher, that does not yeah, sound like yeah, a very yeah, face yeah, name. You're not there to be you a know, nice guy. I, I don't I don't know any butchers that just smile. I mean, yeah, that that's definitely the heel gimmick. I mean, I should hope so. I should surely hope so. And another thing I found interesting is, while Gentleman Chris Adams is usually credited with creating the superkick, the same move was used decades earlier by Black Butcher Johnson in his British wrestling heyday, then referred to as the Savat Kick. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You mean to tell me that some white performer made him something famous that they did that they secretly stole from a black performer they saw a long time before? Yep. <gasps> oh my gosh, that's, 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 that's never, that's never happened before. So I, 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 now we have finally <laughs> uncovered the one time that a white entertainer stole from a black entertainer and did not give credit. We've discovered the one time in history that that has ever happened. Oh my gosh. Man, I can't even I can't even wrap my head around the idea. Who would ever think? What a, what a oh. scandal! We must change the name immediately. What do you call it? The scoundrel. The scoundrel. kick. Savat. It was because uh, it, it's actually a, you know the move comes from savat in the European tradition. You know they actually wouldn't have known it from from kung fu or uh, anything out east. But savat coming from France, a uh, kicking art that was kind of created because in France for a long time. Punching somebody with your fist was a criminal offense no matter what, so humans being creative came up with a kicking system so when the cops busted you for whooping some ass, you could say, I, I didn't just, punch him. I just kicked him a bunch. Oh, yes. I'm going to start using I've never done a super kick, and now I'm going to start doing it and call it the Savant Kick. Yes! <laughs> capital, capital. You learn something new every day. Every day. Every day. Every day. But unfortunately, this was in the era before TV wrestling, which took off in the 60s, so it's easy for his moves and in-ring magic to be forgotten. His younger brother, however, couldn't have peaked at a better time. In 1916, Arthur's mother remarried, and in 1920 gave birth to Johnny Leggy. I probably mispronounced that. Sorry, people, if they hear that and get mad. At first, Johnny wanted a career in the arts. Being a talented musician, playing both the drums and the piano, Johnny often accompanied his other full brother, Cyril, in the London nightclub scene. But a naturally gifted athlete, he eventually transitioned from the nightclub music scene to the squared circle, making his debut in 1938 under the name Bully Johnson in an attempt to ride the coattails of his famous brother. And don't feel bad for the non-wrestling brother, Cyril went on to become a member of the famous comedy group Sid Millward and his Nitwits. And if that's not a great name for a comedy troupe or any troupe, I don't know what is. Especially when you're willingly calling yourself a nitwit. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And what a talented group of performers this family turned out to be. Yeah, it just seems like a very, very talented family. From yeah, the mother to the brother to the other brothers. Yeah. Well, it's like when you grow up in a carny situation, you, you have to remember it's like, oh, what are you going to do, go to college? You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. like, it's, it's, it's like trade school, work on a farm, or figure out some weird goddamn angle. Yeah, so be a nitwit on, uh, what is that, UK Broadway or whatever. I, what is UK Broadway? Uh, no one knows, darling. It's where you go once you lose in real Broadway. Yeah, because it's like, and also when you have a carny family, I can't imagine like, you know, they're like, oh, make sure you, you know, do your math homework so you can grow up to be a banker. It's like, son, you, you didn't fool me once with three card Monty. You got to work harder on this or we're not going to have dinner tonight. It just seems like everybody was focused in his family on entertainment. And when you're always around entertainment, and I felt like it's easier to pick up a entertainment job. Exactly, because you have to keep in mind, entertainers, carny folk really flock together. So it's like when you are a wrestler growing up with that type of people, your uncle is probably a traveling guitar player, and this guy over here is a juggler, and his friend is a stand-up comedian, and that guy knows this actor. So really, your creative influences as you're growing up are going to be non-traditional to say the least so you know you grow up in a carny situation you learn to you know hustle cards pick pockets wrestle and uh you know put on a, you know a clown costume and juggle while riding a unicycle on top of an elephant oh. and i bet both of the brothers we're discussing today are great at selling because i imagine if your mother is a strong woman in the circus and a woman of color at that time in that part of the world 
you probably got your ass whooped because she is a bad mama jamma and a tough lady and she probably didn't take any shit. Yeah, I can probably almost guarantee that. Like, you know, like if you're a, like like how you said, she's a strong lady. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. You know, you got two boys. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Did Carnival children ever run away to join corporate America? <laughs> you know, that's a, that, yeah, I wonder. It's like, oh, yes, out there. Yes, I wish I had, you know, a gray suit and a cubicle. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> yes. I, I don't. I don't think nobody's yearning to be a banker. Yeah, like like some kid, like you know, like gets yelled at by his parents outside the uh, the the lion tamer thing. It's like you know what? One day I'm gonna run away and and become an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> totally, he has like the box of all this hidden like forbidden stuff in his room, and he puts on like the little suit, like a little pocket protector, yeah, and just like an atom machine. It's, it's like uh, you know, uh, it's like Michael J. Fox's character in Family Ties, where he's like raised by the former hippies, so he's like a re- he's like. Like a Reagan Republican to be rebellious against his hippie parents. Like, yeah, 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 totally. Oh, yeah, 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 totally for uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, so it just tells you we always go too far, old chap. No, never. That's true. Not you and me. We tried. No, 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 no. And you know, I'm curious what the nightclub system pay opportunities were because when he started getting into wrestling, wrestling was still kind of on life support. It was illegal in London and wasn't a great way to make one's mark on the world. During the war, he did serve in an artillery division in France for two months before being transferred back home where he became a physical training instructor because once again, this is a guy from a family of athletes. I'm sure, you know, the, the, the slovenly goofs from the pubs who they have to whip up into, you know, guys they can drop on the beaches in Normandy. This is the guy to get him into shape. Yeah, and you pose an interesting question, the aspect of the, the nightlife and the, the elements that come with that promotion, drawing a crowd, and I wonder if that was something that he took a piece of when he, when he dove back into pro wrestling, sort of the family business, but then he had this additional element of nightlife and promotion and you know, another aspect besides just traditional carny stuff. Oh, yeah, because this is a guy who, because he was a show businessman, understands the importance of charisma, understands the importance of getting the crowd behind you. Because this is the, once again, this is the point where it's not just Strangler Lewis, you know, being a tough guy and everybody who he can beat everybody. He knows he has to be the guy who with a wink and a smile can make that crowd just turn on his behalf at a whim. I mean, but if you were saying earlier, like he was a musician, he's a drummer, you know, like anytime you're playing music or like, any type of band, you can't just stand up there and just play the instrument. There has to be some type of pizzazz and personality along with that. Otherwise, you know, people are not gonna come to the shows. And speaking of showbiz pizzazz, after the war, he nearly followed another talent he possessed, ballet. He was a top-rate dancer and helped form Les Ballets Negres with Haitian dancer Berto Pasuka, the first all-black touring dance troupe in Europe. So he helped form one of the first black ballet groups that toured continental Europe, and he almost went in that direction instead of returning to pro wrestling because wrestling was starting to make a comeback. There was a demand for it in the late 40s. He returned to the sport as it found a new footing and legitimacy as entertainment under the new name of Johnny Quango. Well, first of all, that is amazing and fucking metal and tip my cap to be in the first fucking black ballet troupe in the... That's that's, that's amazing. Yeah, that is yeah, really ahead of its amazing. time. Yeah, and you have to imagine that's something where it probably... And it did. It did very well in places like France and Spain, you know, because if you look at just kind of how black entertainers went from America like, uh, to, to France. Yes, yeah, like yeah. Josephine Baker, you yep. know, people like that who... You know, Miles Davis, like uh-huh. entertainers who in America are being, you know, like th- get not allowed in buildings it's, and getting pelted with a banana. Essentially being put on the like chitlin circuit. Yeah. And meanwhile, they can come and main event the biggest nightclubs in Paris and treated like the stars they are. Yeah. And it also adds another layer of his outside of pro wrestling skill set that probably made him stand out and be spectacular in there the 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 body control and precision of a ballet dancer i can only imagine, imagine that, that the, the flippy do high spot bullshit that guy could probably do was crazy for his time yeah because the the body control and rhythm and everything you get from ballet 
translates because even though pro wrestling is a quote-unquote fake sport it still is predicated on the movements positions and rhythms of a fighting sport and everybody here at this table is you know used to be a fighter and we all like my coach would always tell us to go take tango lessons salsa dance classes so about once a month like a bunch of us would go down to uh, the Merc cafe for their drop-in uh salsa dance or tango classes and and like you know do that and like what that can do to your footwork and you know knowing where your arm is while your legs over here your overall body coordination let alone just the pure athletic you know the muscles it builds the limberness it builds does bring a lot to the game yeah just the upper body strength and just being able to like control the hips you know like if you're a ballerina like you have to have upper body strength and you know control your hips so like bringing that to the wrestling ring is a probably a huge part especially in 1940 yeah because that puts him in a different class than a lot of the other guys who are like oh i i'm a big strong stepdad bod type of guy who has been uh you know who's a wrestler but like has that like lumberjack build or the like refrigerator repairman build that like totally, strong yeah. stepdad <laughs> look you know that you know they're they're very strong but they have that like you know, that grappler body, you know, where it's like they're clearly very strong, they're very stout, but they don't have those like fancy, you know, like, you know, glamour, glamour muscles because they've never worked this little tiny like tendon muscle pocket like in your armpit because nothing has ever needed to be done that way because for that you have to do ballet or yoga and that's, that's the only way it works. Yeah, and you're also adding the element of maneuvering bodies in ballet and putting them down exactly and safe safely using the you know the inertia and momentum but then the also controlling the landing and all of those elements that cross over to what is now developing at this time into more of the sports entertainment style of pro wrestling and it actually did have a cross-pollination where you actually started seeing wrestling throws like the monkey flip in ballet and while i am lying wow. and i've just made that up right now oh you got me that was yeah. crazy retroactively no, 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 we're gonna we're gonna put it on wikipedia yeah, no, you really had me going just now totally I was, I was you heard it here first the monkey flip and ballerina yes and throughout the 50s quango was a charismatic baby face on the joint promotion circuit keep in mind this is again this is a black man in the 1950s showing how much more progressive things were in england because he is not a heel he is not just there in the south being booed where so people can yell a certain word that people in the south like to yell back then he is a baby face he is beloved by this crowd and in october of 1960 he made his television debut against iron man steve logan who was a big star at the time and with his trademark sense of humor and amazing athleticism quango won over the crowd and then won the match he won his television television debut well i can tell you from personal experience old chap when you have an ango name you're always going to be a baby face and you're always going to get over it's just i don't know it's science especially if there's a tutu involved somewhere it's usually what's going to happen but you, you know, know the ballet connection there the, just yeah. yes yeah. the 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 gravitas the you know what i'm saying the huevos rancheros to be that stylistic baby face and and the charisma and the you know i'm sure it was an unprecedented incorporation of showmanship and just you know pizzazz and style man i mean they love this oh, guy yeah, because if you look at video or photos of johnny quango he was a very handsome man did his hair nice he came up wearing like those almost like you know william regal style jackets like he looked he looked like a fucking star coming to that ring he wasn't coming up being a wild man or like a street tough he came up there with sophistication and style and he was an instant star, an instant TV star, and quickly became a mainstay on ITV's World of Sport, where he earned the nickname King of the Headbutt, which was his setup for his finisher. And he usually set it up by a quick and hilarious polishing of his forehead to prepare the move. And yes, he's a comedic wrestler, as were many in the British tradition of the time. There's a reason Colt Cabana cites many British wrestlers as his influence. Charisma, a little bit of silliness, some athleticism behind it, that gets the crowd over. Who gives a shit what the grappling purists have to say about it? 
Yes, I mean, it's, it's entertainment. You know, we came to entertain the people. So, like, it doesn't matter how many moves you have if you're not entertaining the people. Yeah, because you're not trying to win over this, like, small percentage of hardcore fans at this point. You need to be entertainment on television. You need to make the children cheer you. You need to make grandma cheer you. You need to be responsible for as many people as possible changing the channel at 7 o'clock or whatever to see what's going on this week. Yeah, and it also speaks to the nature of pro wrestling itself. People think about the moves, but really it's about the moments, right? Yeah. The anticipation of him shining up his head to do a headbutt. I mean, that sounds like, you know, the people's elbow when he takes the elbow pad yeah. off and goes through this you know thing to just you know do. what's coming a, next. I mean, yes, a headbutt will mess somebody up, but the theatrical application of it. Yeah, because if you think about nearly every famous finisher a big star has, it's not the move, it's the moment before the move. It's, you know, everything from, you know, the rock taking his, you know, pad off, throwing it. It's, you know, Steve Austin giving the middle fingers. It's, you know, John Cena, you know, waving his hand in front of his face. It's always that, like, that brief moment where you're like, oh, shit, here it comes. And that's what makes the finisher so theatric and emotionally important to the match. And conversely, makes it so emotionally important if someone kicks out of it. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I and it also speaks to how ahead of his time he was because we have not come across too many people that have developed signature maneuvers at this time outside of like Strangler Lewis where that was just his shoot sugar hold that he was really exceptional at getting. Exactly. Like up until kind of this period in wrestling, if somebody had a signature move, it was just their personal favorite submission hold that they could catch on anyone if anybody pulled any bullshit. Yeah. You know, Ed Lewis had his scarf hold crank. Um, Luthez had his uh, double wrist lock, Kimura, whatever you want to call it. Guys had their signature move, but that's because that was their go-to. They could catch it from every angle, so they could make it showbiz, but if somebody wanted to be funny, they could catch it for real. But a guy shining up his forehead to set up a big, goofy headbutt, there's no practical approach to that. It's pure show business. It's pure pop. It's pure, oh shit, he's going to do the thing. Here it comes. Yay. Yeah, that's awesome. Rem yes, remember the first time I saw an iconic tag team named Dick Kick. Ah, oh, tell me And about they it. said that they came to kick dicks and drink whiskey, and they were all out of whiskey. And they went to the ring, and they kicked someone in the dick. And they got DQ'd, and they were astonished by this because apparently they didn't know the rules. And then they kicked the referee in the dick, and they were the most over thing that has ever happened. I do remember that. Yes, it was amazing. It was, it was, it was great. And it was because, you know, the, the showmanship and the theatricality and the anticipation of that one move. And at the end of the day, whether you're headbutting somebody or kicking them in the dick, it's still a real move. And, you know, sty yes. stylistically done, but it's still going to hurt. Yeah, I mean, anytime you're, like, like, like you said, kick to the dick or like a headbutt. Anything that can be perceived as something that hurts in real life, especially if you're telling beforehand, that's what people want. Yeah, they want to know that the move that they are seeing finish this larger-than-life competitor is something that will really get the job done. And that led to him going up the ladder. Johnny Quango feuded with the top wrestlers of the TV era, including Jackie Polo, and the two main evented at Royal Albert Hall, which is a huge goddamn deal, with the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip, watching. The two men with their matches were prominently featured in the opening titles on Wednesday night televised wrestling, and Royal Albert Hall. That is a Victorian age building where literally royalty comes to watch concerts, sporting events, boxing, wrestling. I remember the UFC probably lost a fortune running in that. Just over. It's, like sort of, it's such a prestigious place. It's like Madison Square Gardens times 50 because royalty shows up in their tuxedos to watch it. This is where the aristocracy comes to watch their you know, huge boxing matches. This is an accomplishment that you really can't put a, a value on because it's priceless. Yeah, he's in there performing in front of members of the royal family. I wonder if the prince was a mark for the headbutt. What do you think? I, I mean, I'm pretty so. sure he was. I mean, I would be. I, I like to think maybe the opposite. Like, he was sipping his tea, and the headbutt happens, and he, like, does, like, a spit take yeah. on his tea, and his monocle falls out. He's like, <laughs> I say! Yeah, totally. He certainly got a pop of meal, Jeff. That's, a, that's fantastic. And I love, 
I love the idea that a baby face can go as a, a, a black man as a baby face and as the, the, the cheered hero can go into the, the royal hall of performance and, and put on a pro wrestling performance at this time. Yeah, That's think, pretty you awesome. You think about the arc. Like, if we talk about yeah. this being his arc, he goes from son of a carnival strong woman to wrestling in front of royalty on television in front of the fucking prince. Uh, it's... I mean, you, 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 you can, outside of like accidentally like being abducted by a UFO and being taken to another galaxy as an ambassador for Earth, you really have a hard time getting higher than that. Yeah, I yeah. mean, that's like son of a plumber times, you know, times three at yeah, least. Yeah, that's, least. that's incredible when you think about what that arc is, and that's real life, isn't it? We we haven't even gotten to the to the finish yet, Hulk. Yeah, because this isn't what this isn't like where he peaked. I mean, that was a peak, but this wasn't something where he was a flash in the pan and then tumbled down the mid card and then wasn't used and had to come back as some sort of goof spot like it happens in wrestling a lot. He was he wasn't you know a one off attraction. He wasn't an unknown darling of only the serious fans or a mid card could have been. He was a crossover star seen by men, women, children nationwide on television every week. He was seen in over eighty televised matches. He was seen competing on World of Sport until his retirement in 1984. Like many wrestlers before and since, he hung on much longer past his peak years than maybe he should have, but he was still able to make the crowd cheer even as his athleticism faded. Character wrestlers have a longer shelf life than athletic wrestlers. That's just how it is. Yeah, it's, a, it's about emotional connection with your audience. And once you have that, they will suspend as much disbelief as it takes to cheer their hero yeah and once you're that guy people will always see that i mean we have so many stories in this business about people who are propped up as heroes when we were kids turning out to be total scumbags but there's still a part when you watch that old footage that takes you back where for that moment you don't think about the bad thing yeah you know you know i can still listen to a michael jackson song and appreciate thriller you know what i mean in that moment and it's once somebody resonates with you as like that's your guy or that's your artist or that's your wrestler you, you almost never can lose that as long as you don't screw it up and that's so tight that he i can only imagine what his emo his cultural ripple effect was going into the 70s and 80s for young black kids growing up in the uk man yeah and also to kind of touch on what we were talking about some people don't need moves to get over I mean, you see guys like Honky Tonk Man, who up until very recently was still constantly booked, even though he's like, I'm not doing any, taking any bumps or doing really much of anything. I'm going to go out there, be a fun character, and people are going to want to see me. Uh, you have guys like Kikotaro today, who, you know, he's not doing much more than a, a, a move or two, but it's just, it's all about just connecting, being fun. And you can take that type of career much further than you have with most of the like serious go, go, go type of styles. And even once he retired, he still tried to hang on a little bit, and he was a referee for a while. But it was simply weird to have a legend like that as the third man in the ring on a regular basis, not just like a weird WrestleMania stipulation, legend spot. He was just legitimately trying to be a referee. But that's very, very, very difficult when you were a star in this sport up until just a couple of years ago. Some ways it works, like, uh, like Jack Dempsey loved refereeing pro wrestling, but he was a star boxer, refereeing for yeah, like, yeah, for refereeing, wrestling company, yeah, refereeing yeah, for different. like you know Mildred Burke matches because for some reason he thought she was awesome and rightfully so. Or you know Mike Tyson, you know re, you know refereeing and it's it's things like that work. But if it's just a legendary wrestler trying to be the referee, it becomes a distraction, and he had to eventually step away from the sport completely. Yeah, it's almost sad. Yeah, because you see this mythological creature, this this hero, this legend, and now he's reduced to the barometer of what we compare normal people to in the ring against these, you know, human titans. When they clash, it's like there's, you know, Hulk Hogan and there's Ultimate Warrior and there's a regular person, and that's your 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 measuring stick in the ring as the third guy to take a legend and put him in that spot. That just oh that's rough. Seems yeah, sad. It, it just makes me like like I start hearing like the uh, the Bruce Springsteen song from the wrestler playing. It's like you ever seen all three? Yeah. You know, one mega pony? Well, you seen me? Aww. Yeah, that's that. no. Did he ever get like any kind of like 
angle with his brother? Did yeah, him and the butcher career, ever their meet? Their careers really didn't overlap by the time, because I mean, there was a significant age difference between yeah. the two. And Butcher, he, his career pretty much like tapered off. Uh, you know, right when Quango was kind of coming into it. So there really was no overlap, no real ability to do a program or, uh, you know, anything like that. Tag no, team wrestling wasn't really a thing. No and, chance for the stable. Yeah, wow. nothing nothing quite like that. And, you know, they, they both just kind of, you know, they eventually both did leave the sport. And I had a really hard time finding any information on how they spent their golden years. I know that Black Butcher Johnson, uh, he's, he taught many of the next generation of British wrestlers. Um, not a lot about his private life uh, beyond a marriage that ended in divorce due to abandonment. Uh, Shock end to a wrestler's marriage. The article on it stated that while she was out one afternoon in 1940, someone came to the house and took his clothes away. She was not surprised as he had been away for several weeks. He refused to return to her. He uh, fathered no. three children with his second wife and Black Butcher Johnson passed away in 1987 at the age of 75. Johnny Quango, another person who I just really couldn't find a whole lot. It seems like he just settled down to ordinary life uh, and he passed away from cancer on January 19th, 1994 at the age of 74 and was survived by his six children. Well, Johnny Quango is truly a pro wrestler that was ahead of his time that influenced so many people that you, you don't really understand when you're until you get to talk to the people that you look at as mentors, but the people that we have as mentors in our generation, this was a guy that they were looking up to, the Regals, the, the guys that came up in the world of sports style. And it's just, it's really fascinating how many people were so revolutionary that we barely know about. I know, like, I've, I haven't heard of these people until, like, recently, you know? So it's just like, I'm just very... It's so weird because it's, you're telling me like he came up in the 40s and the 50s, but he sounds like a wrestler from today. Oh, yeah. No, this is a guy you could have like, you know, if we get in our time machine, go back, grab him off the street, drop him off today and put him on TV, he would be over. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it seems like it. Quango and Chango is a tag team old championship. <laughs> Print money right now. And yes. in a way, like, I actually think it's, it's nice that, like, I didn't find a lot about their lives after wrestling because... Normally, if you make the news after your wrestling career, it was bad. Yeah, nothing, nothing good happened. And they lived long, you know, seemingly, seemingly healthy, happy lives. Had families, weren't uh, you know getting arrested for bar brawls or uh, you know uh, setting fire to mules or whatever weird shit. Because that's something we really noticed a pattern when we you know and especially back when the like the 1800s when we were going over so many of these old wrestlers where it's like oh they were a big star and then they stopped wrestling at 35 and then they were dead by 42 or else they like tried to like hang on way too long with weird comebacks trying to claw their way back in and it was embarrassing and then they're dead by 47 so to just when you finally do see guys you know or even like the ones who did live longer like Hackenschmidt Hackenschmidt for the most part, got sent packing from America and wrestling as like an emotionally broken disgrace who never really recovered and just became a you know a fitness uh, uh, icon. These are two guys who had great careers, had a great time, made lots of money, were stars, didn't have to eat a lot of shit uh, due to their uh, due, due to their race about it, and then left wrestling on their mostly their own terms, and then just settled down to ordinary life and raised children. And I think that's awesome if that's you know what you're into. They got to do it, and uh, yeah, God bless them. I mean, 75 is a good age. Both of them are still like 75, right? Oh yeah. yeah, and especially from that generation. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't think a lot of people are living to 75 now. Oh, yeah. much back like back then. Yeah, there's something to be said for having your career and then being able to step away and being at peace with that because i think that's what we see on one end or the other whether people crash and burn and make terrible life choices or they hold on too long it's because they can't reconcile with stepping away yeah because when you know if you watch videos of him kind of towards the end of his career and there's a lot of them on youtube yeah i mean he's a little bit of an older guy but that crowd still cheers him like crazy it's never that 
oh, this fucking guy. It's like, oh boy, you know, uh, it's not, it's not that. He never had that go away, you know, energy. People still loved him. He never had to do like the, oh man, I'm gonna have to do like a shit show in this little village over here in front of 20 people because I needed the, uh, you know, 500 pounds or whatever. So he never, they never really had to deal with that. They just kind of were like, cool, we were, we were big stars and now we're people. And you know we're not going to uh, you know make a nobody's going to do a true 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 crime podcast episode about <laughs> oh, what we no. did next. Yes, no. The closest they're going to get is this one. But man, tip of the cap to Johnny Quango and you. to the Black Butcher. Yeah, two two trendsetters and trailblazers in pro wrestling on the way other side of the way line. way way before their time. Yeah, for sure, brother. So those are stories that, like I said, people in the UK are going to go, yeah, no shit, idiots. But to us. Right. This was new. This was fascinating. It was inspiring, and it was so cool to read about, learn about, and talk about. So hopefully for the non-UK listeners, you feel the same way we did. So that's another tale or tales uh, in the book for this little podcast of ours. So it's time for us to wander off for another day. You know, make sure you're you know, following us on, on Twitter, like us on Facebook, you know, check out our Instagram. I like to post the old photos of some of these guys. And if you're on a podcast app that allows you to leave reviews, we would sure as heck like to hear uh, hear what you think about us so long as it's good otherwise as previously stated you have to fight one of us so for chongo and aziz i'm nick gossard thanks for being here with us we'll talk to you next time yes right. thank go, you let's go hit the bar yes, yes. Martin. 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 Martin.